There is an old legend about a man who often went forward at revival services in the church and knelt at the altar in tears. He always loudly prayed, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. One Sunday morning, the pastor, tired of hearing the same old prayer, knelt beside him and loudly prayed, No, Lord, kill the spider. Repentance does more than clean out the cobwebs. Repentance kills the spider. Some think that the spider is dead, and we must merely treat the spider as dead. Mental gymnastics may claim that the spider is dead, but both we and the spider know better. If we just keep cleaning out the cobwebs, we will never enjoy the sweet relief of genuine repentance. If we just keep cleaning out the cobwebs, we will never experience the comfort of a renewed relationship with God. The book of Zechariah is filled with great promises of comfort. God promises to restore his people to the joy of an intimate relationship with him. He wants to bless his people, but he begins his prophecy of restoration with a single major condition. Restoration requires repentance. We have a great deal of misunderstanding about repentance, which leads modern preachers to minimize the doctrine today. Repentance is not penance. It is not making up for my sin. You cannot make up for what is done. Repentance is not remorse. It is not feeling bad about sin, or worse, regretting that we got caught. Repentance is not punishment. It is not paying for my sin. I can never pay for my sin. Only the blood of Christ can pay for our sins. What is repentance? Repentance is looking at sin God's way instead of our way. It is returning to God and accepting his assessment of what we have done without excuses, without rationalizations. Repentance from any sin means to value the opposite of that sin. Our value system changes. There is a turning point in every life that leads to spiritual healing and restoration with God. Repentance is that turning point. The reason for repentance is the wrath of God. Zechariah chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew construction that is used here is very emphatic. Literally, God says, I was angry with anger. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, adds great anger. The King James Version reads, sore displeased. God says, I was really, really angry. I was ticked off at your forefathers. We are reluctant to speak of God's wrath today. It is not a popular subject. 
we would rather picture God as a God of love and compassion. When was the last time you heard a message about wrath or judgment? The subject is taboo in our culture. If someone does talk about wrath or judgment, or horror of horrors, hell, he is considered fanatical or puritanical. So we mumble a few words about judgment and sin before we get quickly into themes of love and compassion. Those doctrines sell well in our culture. Did you know that there are more references in the Bible to the anger and wrath of God than there are to his love and kindness? The theme of God's wrath is a major theme of Scripture. The late J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, suggests that just as Pilgrim's Progress might be called a book about roads to hell, the Bible could be called a book about God's wrath. Packer says that there are two principles about the wrath of God which we must remember. First, the wrath of God is always judicial. In other words, it is the wrath of a judge administering justice. God's wrath is never cruel or vindictive like much of our anger as humans. Every person who receives God's judicial wrath deserves it. We get precisely what we should get in his court. The wrath of God is always just and perfect. He is angry about what he should be angry about. Second, experiencing the wrath of God is man's choice. The Bible consistently teaches that humans do not have to experience the wrath of God. There is a way out. No human ever experiences hell without first rejecting heaven. In John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. As J.I. Packer wrote, The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose. In all its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. Why do we need to speak about God's wrath at all? Why do we need to emphasize such an unpopular subject today? It is because we need to stress that God detests sin. God hates sin. Do we? Or are we casual about sin? Repentance means that we adopt God's value system, and in God's value system, sin evokes wrath. The reason for repentance is the wrath of God. But the focus of repentance is a relationship with God. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We do not just repent from something. We repent to someone. God loves you. He wants you to return to him so that he can return to you. 
The root cause of all sin is a broken relationship with God. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to restore our relationship with him. Many today have a problem reconciling love and anger. They say that if God is a God of love, then he cannot be a God of anger. But this is simply not true. Love and anger are not opposites. Love and hate are opposites. In fact, love is a proper foundation for godly anger. A father can be angry with a child because he loves that child. If we are angry without love, then we're sinning. Even so, God can be angry with us and still love us enough to send his son to die for us. Three times in this one verse, God is called the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. This is the name of the judging God. As someone has pointed out, God is the divine warrior who is a consuming fire as he judges sin. Yet this divine warrior never stops loving his people. God loves even in his wrath. We need to watch out for preachers who preach damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts, as J.I. Packer said. God always judges with tears in his eyes. I want you to notice in this verse that repentance is relational. God does not say, return to my laws, return to my rules, or my traditions. God says, return to me. We often think of repentance as being rule-dominated. But repentance, at its heart, at its core, is relationship-oriented. Repentance is all about returning to the joy of a relationship with God. Paul speaks about the Thessalonian believers and how they turned to God from idols, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. If you don't understand what it means to repent to God, you will never understand what it means to repent from sin. Just as repentance is relational, so restoration is relational. God says that when we return to him, he returns to us. The actions are closely related. The restoration involves a mutual return so that relationship is restored. Christ died to reconcile us to God and God to us. The focus of repentance should be on our relationship with God. Anger does not deny love. Love does not cease to exist, but sin builds barriers to the expression of that love. Jesus restores the relationship for those who repent of their sins by breaking down the barriers that sin erected in the first place. When my daughter was very young, I had to discipline her for something she did. After expressing my anger about her wrong actions and disciplining her, 
she came over to me and said, Daddy, I'm sorry I upset you. You still love me when you angry? I quickly responded, Yes, Daddy always loves you, even when he's angry. Anger does not indicate the absence of love. Biblical anger is very much the expression of true love. God is angry about our sin because he loves us so much. If God didn't love us, then he wouldn't be angry with us when we sin, and he surely wouldn't reach out to restore us in his love. So the reason for repentance is the wrath of God. The focus of repentance is a relationship with God. And third, the warning about repentance is demonstrated by God, verses 4 through 6. Four times in these opening six verses, the forefathers are mentioned. This shows us where the people were looking for their comfort. Their own cultural and historical national heritage was where they were placing their faith instead of in God himself. Our national, cultural, and religious heritage can become more important to us than God, and we need to repent of such idolatry. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. God remembers his people. That truth is, com is a comforting truth in the book of Zechariah, a wonderful truth. It is great comfort to know that God remembers us. Yet, friends, never forget that the truth of God's memory is also a warning. God not only remembers us to take care of us in our needs, but God also remembers us to judge us in our sin. The real question is, do we remember God? Do we remember God's ways and God's values? God remembers is both a comfort and a warning. The warning is demonstrated in the history of the people. God says in verse 4 of Zechariah 1, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Someone has said that those who learn nothing from history are doomed to repeat it. Israel is a prime example of that proverb. They were warned by God again and again to repent, but obstinately refused to repent. Over and over again, God reaches out to his people, pleading with them, begging them to turn back or disaster would come but they refused again and again to learn from their failures. The worst part of it all is that the people of Zechariah's day had not learned from their history. They too were already acting just like their forefathers in refusing to repent of their sins. 
The Hebrew construction used here could well be translated, Stop being like your fathers. They had forgotten the lessons that God had taught their fathers down through history. Unfortunately, we live much the same today. We do not learn from history. We disobey God, face his anger, are restored by his grace, and promptly forget his instruction, rinse and repeat again and again. I grew up in Pakistan where my parents were missionaries. We lived in a large mission compound in a two-story brick house. Ascending the outside of the house was a steep set of brick stairs. I was just a young boy, but I was full of adventure. I wanted to climb those stairs in the worst way because they went to the roof of the house. My father warned me. He told me not to climb those stairs because they were dangerous. And if I fell, I could knock out a tooth. Well, one day Dad was gone. I was playing near the steps, which looked so inviting. I decided to hop up the steps on one foot. I wouldn't climb the steps, because Dad had said not to climb the steps. And I certainly wouldn't go to the top. But Dad had not said I couldn't hop up a few steps. Well, about the third little hop, I tripped and fell on the brick stairs. I broke one front tooth, killed the other front tooth. I had not listened to my father's warning, and I disobeyed him, and I paid the price for my disobedience. A root canal on one tooth and a crown on the other tooth remind me to this day about my disobedience. I still have problems with both teeth, and they have cost me repair bills even as an adult. I remember, and I hope I never forget, the price of disobedience. There are consequences for sin. Zechariah warns us that God has demonstrated his wrath in history. The Old Testament is full of examples where human disobedience incurs great cost. We must not think that we can get away with sin. God remembers. He never forgets until we find our peace in Jesus. When we repent and trust in Christ, then the Bible says God remembers our sin no more. He removes it as far as the east is from the west, the Bible tells us. In Christ, we find full restoration. Notice also that the warning is demonstrated in the power of his word, verses 5 and 6. Your, fa your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I have commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Zechariah mentions the prophets four times in six verses. The prophets were the mouthpieces of God to the people. The emphasis here is on the preeminence of God's word over both the preacher and the listener. 
the forefathers and the prophets are both long gone. They were overtaken by God's word. The word overtaken is also used in Deuteronomy 28 verse 45, where God said these words, So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you and overtake you. These curses will overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God. Where are your fathers? Dead captives overtaken by the very word of God which triumphed over them in their sin. Where are the prophets? Dead. The word of God is more important than either the human messenger or the human listener. God's word reigns triumphant. So first of all, the reason for repentance is the wrath of God. The focus of repentance is a relationship with God. The warning about repentance is demonstrated by God. Fourth principle, the nature of repentance is agreement with God. Verse 6. Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Who are the they in this verse? When Zechariah says that they repented, about whom is he speaking? There are three options. First, they are the generations of Israelites alive during the destruction of Jerusalem. Second, they are the generations of Israelites born during the captivity. And third, they are the generation of Israelites listening to Zechariah preach right then. It's probably best to understand this as a reference to the generation's past rather than the generation current to Zechariah, because the pronouns in the passage consistently referred to the past generations in the context of this verse. They referred to the fathers. So these are the fathers. The fathers eventually repented. That's the beauty of it. They did eventually repent, many of them. They agreed with God about their sin. But it was too late to avoid the consequences. As the city of Jerusalem was being destroyed, they lamented their sin. And they turned to God in prayer, but the judgment was already in process. You see, after God is disciplining us, it is too late for us to avoid the discipline by, be, by repenting. Repentance does not necessarily preclude the consequences of our sin. Repentance is agreement with God, even if that agreement means agreement with his judgment. God is right, even in his wrath. 
Repentance agrees with God's plan of action and repentance agreed, agrees with God's action on the plan. Let me say that again. Repentance agrees with God's plan of action and repentance agrees with God's action on the plan. Imagine being Jeremiah during the Babylonian invasion when some people repented as they looked out over the armies besieging Jerusalem as a famine so bad that they ate their own dead swept through the city of Jerusalem and they could see the armies waiting outside the walls some came to Jeremiah and said what do we do? We have sinned. Jeremiah's answer was repent and say, Yes, God, we sinned, and you are perfectly right in judging us in accordance with our sin. You are just in destroying us. Your plan for our pain is perfect. That's essentially how God was asking them to respond. Repentance is agreeing with God's plan of action even if that plan of action is painful. Now, imagine that you are Ezekiel in exile after the destruction of Jerusalem as people repent and say, Yes, Lord, we sinned, we were wrong, we pursued other gods instead of you, we are sorry. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem, they're in exile and Ezekiel is ministering to them in exile, and they are sorry for their sin, for their idolatry. What is Ezekiel's response? Ezekiel's response was to say that their repentance does not nullify the 70 years of captivity that lay ahead of them. What? God won't restore us to our land for 70 years, even though we've repented of our sin? The prophet says, right. You see, there are consequences to sin, and repentance does not nullify those consequences. God took King David's baby regardless of his repentance. Part of repentance is agreeing that whatever God does is just and right. He is always right. We must agree with his actions because he warned us ahead of time that he would do what he does, and God always does what he says. We have difficulty with this aspect of repentance for sure. I remember when I was about seven years old, we were traveling by airplane back from Pakistan to America. It was a long transatlantic flight, so my mother had purchased two little toys for my brother and me. She wanted to keep us occupied on the trip, but she warned us that we could not open the boxes until we were on the plane. Like most little boys, I was busy shaking the box and tossing it about in the airport. My mother warned me that I should stop because I might lose the toy. I didn't listen and kept on doing it. 
The call came to board the plane, and I tossed it one last time. It, it fell to the floor, and I grabbed it without looking and rushed to get on the, on the plane. Once the plane took off, Mom said, Now you may open your boxes. My brother opened his and found a great little toy truck. I opened my box, and it was empty. The toy, I guess, must have fallen out when I rushed to board the plane. Mom felt bad for me, and I felt bad, but there was no changing the situation. All my sorries would not change the consequences of my carelessness. The toy was gone. Repentance does not change the consequences of our actions. We agree with God that God is right and we are wrong, even when it is painful. God's plan of action is always perfect and just. That is often difficult to accept, but it is real repentance. You say, well, Dave, what's the point then? Point is a restored relationship with God, not avoidance of our consequences and our painful experiences. We do not just repent from something, we repent to someone. Mark Twain writes in his autobiography about the killing of a man named Smar on the streets of Hannibal during his childhood. Some thoughtful idiot placed a great family Bible spread open on the profane old man's breast, he recalls with horror. The young Mark Twain struggled with this chilling memory of that moment, especially as his fears continually were stirred by the preachers who used such events to warn the people to repent again and again. He wrote, Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charged with the bitterness of death. After each tragedy, I recognized the warning and repented, repented and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog. Those are his words. But Mark Twain never found any peace from his constant repenting. Because he was only repenting from something and not to someone. God promises to restore our relationship with him. He wants you to return to him. He wants you to experience his love. He wants you to be in right relationship with him. But restoration requires repentance. Repentance is a turning point in life. We turn away from all that we pursue in life apart from God. We turn back to God through Jesus Christ, demanding nothing from him, but accepting whatever he gives, knowing that what he gives is grace greater than all our failures. When you come to God deserving nothing, Then you will experience the exquisite joy of his arms open wide in grace to welcome you back to him. Will you do that today?